So uh, what we're doing today is we're taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And what, the, what we're doing instead is looking at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. And we are looking at this passage today because uh, we just received new members into Ironworks. And so it's, it's important for us just to pause and to reflect upon what it means for us as a church to practice church membership and also to be a member of a church. And so this sermon is not an argument for church membership, but instead it's really exploring an important metaphor that Paul uses to describe the church. And the metaphor that we are going to be looking at today is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the metaphor that we're going to be looking at today. And this is important for us to think about because like, life in the church or like being a member of a, of a church is different than being a member at other social organizations. Being a, being a member of Ironworks is different and should be different than a Costco membership or being a member at the YMCA, being a member of a church uh, is different. So how is it different? How is being a, a member or a participant in the church unique from the rest of life? That's really what I, what I want to explore this morning. So we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 27, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through verse 27. Let's give our careful attention to reading God's word. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand, head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are, great, are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day and this word, and we also thank you for your spirit at work in our hearts now. Be with us now as we look at your word that we would see the truth that you would have us live by as we seek to walk with you in our everyday lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. When I was in high school, I took a course in, called AP uh, 
English. It wasn't AP English. It was like AP English literature. And so uh, in preparation for that class, uh, we had to read a lot of English works. And uh, it could be Shakespeare or something else. And, but there's this one book that was written, uh, in the concept at least, was written by an 18-year-old. And it was published uh, when she was 21. And that book is Frankenstein. And in the book of Frankenstein, Frankenstein is the, the scientist, and he is thinking to himself, how can we like, really bring life back to the dead? And that's what he's wondering. And so he sets out on a scientific enterprise to, to see how this could happen. And so he begins to assemble a corpse. But how he does this is by going to graves and digging up bodies and taking arms when he needed an arm. He's only, he only needed two of them, or he needed a foot. He just began to attach a body, and he sew, sewed it together. And so how he wanted to see whether or not he could bring someone uh, back to life is through electricity. And he was successful. And the, the monster, it, it, the, the, his, the, the result of his experiment was the monster. That's all he is referred to in, throughout the entire book. But right there, let me just pause for a moment, because in a way, that is a truly horrific picture, but in a way, that is what Paul is referring to here, where each of us as, of, as individuals are members of the same body, that one of you is a hand, one of you is a foot, one of you is a, an eye, one's a head, one's a neck, and keep going and going and going. But the difference is, instead of being the, the monster like Frankenstein, the church is truly beautiful. Because when we think about the church, and Paul has this in mind, that when the church is coming together, there's this amazing diversity. He has this diversity in mind when he says, point blank, that some of you are Jews or Greeks. So in other words, some of you don't even have the same ethnic background. Some of you are slaves or free. In other words, that in the church, there are people who are who belong to different social economic classes. And so in the life of the church, some of you are Democrats or Republicans, rich or poor. You have different ethnic and cultural heritage, whether it be like Irish or German or Korean or Chinese or somewhere anywhere in between. And when it comes to the life of the church, that's only the church where that diversity is so united. Like, I grew up being told that, like, hey, there's, this, this is something that a neighbor told me, that when you, when you hang, up, hang out together or you go over for Thanksgiving to someone else's house, there are things you don't talk about. One of them is religion, another one is politics, and I forget the third one. Like, so that means it wasn't that important. But the point is that in the life of the church, we, we see people who, who are coming together of all sorts of different backgrounds, but yet they're being united together as one, into one body of Christ. The church is this beautiful body of Christ and we, that really embodies all this diversity in so many ways. And so as we lean into this text, as we lean into this metaphor, the thing that I want out to highlight is that being a part of a church is indispensable to our walk with God. Being a part of a church is indispensable to our walk with God. Now, just to, to point something out about this text, uh, as we look at this text, this is a, just one metaphor about the church. This is a metaphor that the church is the body of Christ. And if you look out throughout, if you look throughout the entire New Testament, there are other metaphors that 
are used to describe the church. It could be that the church is the bride of Christ, that the Christ is the head of the church, that the that Jesus, when we sang this earlier, or we read this earlier in Ephesians, that the church is really the, the living temple of God, and, of, and the Christ is the cornerstone. And so all those are different metaphors. This is just one metaphor, and so it has a, some very unique items that I want to highlight for us today. But as we begin to lean into this text, here's the one idea that I want to spend the rest of the day in unpacking. And the one idea is this, is that you have a place within the body of Christ. You have a place within the body of Christ. And I want to unpack this reality because there are certain things in our lives that prevent us from fully participating in the life of the church. And those things that prevent us from participating in the life of the church are really deadly lies. And so I want to consider how we, every single one of us has a place within the church by considering the lies that we believe that prevent us from participating and having a place in the church. So the first lie to, that I want to consider is the lie of expendability. The lie of expendability. And, and Paul mentions this lie. He has this lie in mind when he gets to verse 15. When the foot says to the, the, the body, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. So expendability says that I am not needed, I am not wanted, and so therefore I am not necessary to the, the body, to the life and the good of the body. And sadly, it's, it's actually very easy for us to f be expendable, not to be expendable, excuse me. It's, it's easy for us to feel expendable in the life of the church. Sometimes you may feel like you do not belong because you don't look like others in church, where you feel out of place what, because of your age or your, your marital situation or just your season of life. Perhaps you could feel out of place in the church because you had an idea that was shot down. And just this week, um, like I've been reading uh, this a book that a friend um, edited and put together, and this book is called Co-Laborers and Co-Heirs, A Family Conversation. And it, it is a compilation of, pers of personal essays that are written by women in the church, that are specifically written by women in the denomination that, that Ironworks belongs to. And one woman named Katie, she shares this story. Uh, she grew up in the church, and she was playing the piano. She was playing the, gu the guitar. She, she was a very, very talented musician. And she was playing um, music um, for the, the worship services in her private Christian school that she was a part of. And so when she gets to, to 10th grade, as she is uh, regularly playing music like three times a week, an authority figure in the school came to her and said, hey, you are usurping um, your other people's roles in the, in, uh, on the music team. You need to give more opportunities to the, your fellow students who are men. And so all of a sudden, she was just pushed to the, to the back and to the background. And like she, she writes, and she's like she's that really that she struggled with that for the rest of her high school she, uh, time. She struggled with that even as she went to to university. And my friend Doug was her campus pastor. He's like, "Oh, you play music? Oh, you should play for us on Thursday." And she's like, "What just happened? I'm being told two very conflicting messages here." 
But like, so right there, um, we see her story. And that story perhaps may be familiar to you. Like, it, it could be about gender, it could be about something else. Like, a friend of mine, he was playing music in a church, and he was wearing flip-flops. And he was told, hey, you can't wear flip-flops, and you're not going to play music until you don't wear flip-flops. And so, like, some, we, these types of things are actually sadly occur within the church that it feels normal. And when these types of things happen in a church, you just feel unwanted. You feel like you don't have a place. You feel unnecessary. And so you wonder to yourself, am I even needed here? Am I even wanted here? Does God even have a place for me? Because that's what happened. What happened in those moments is that gifts were not affirmed. Service was not being valued. And so these individuals... Katie reasonably wondered, am I needed here? And so Paul brings us and challenges this entire mentality, challenges this lie with a glorious truth when he gets to verse 18. He says this in verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. The point is that you are here today. That's not by accident. That's actually on purpose. God brought you here today on purpose. He, he is, in fact, in the language that Paul is using, he is arranging the church. He is organizing the church. Every single one of you is a glorious proof that God, God's love and care is shown to everybody, regardless of personality or spiritual gifting. And so Paul's words here are an echo of Psalm 139. Some, Psalm 139 goes like this. Oh, Lord, you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Paul's words echo this psalm, and the psalmist's point is that each and every single one of us as individuals are created unique by God on purpose. And so Paul is pointing out that all of us unique individuals are being brought together and put together, made together, and, and arranged together into the body of Christ. God does this on purpose. So the glorious truth is, you are indispensable. You are indispensable. God wants you here in this church because he has brought you here and he has rescued you. You are indispensable. You are not only valued, you're not only prized, but you are needed in the life of the church. And so this means that, this means that you are, in fact, indispensable. So that's the first lie that we, we just considered, the lie of exp expendability. The second lie I want to consider is the lie of inferiority or, and superiority. And it's important at this point, it's really important for, for us to know the context that Paul is speaking into. Because what, what we just did right today is we just dropped into the middle of 1 Corinthians. If you spent any time in 1 Corinthians, it's very complex. There's a lot of controversial things going on. So what is going on in this church in Corinth? And so this is where the historic context uh, is important for us because some teachers were coming to Corinth and they were teaching a distorted view of the Christian faith. 
And the basic claim of, the, of their teaching is this. They were basically saying that being ordinary is not enough. They were saying that being ordinary is not enough. That, in fact, if you're really going to be following Jesus Christ, you have to be extraordinary. True Christians were extraordinary. That's what they were saying. And so you can expect that this would cause controversy. This created a lot of division. If you go back uh, to 1 Corinthians 1, you see Paul saying, uh, he's, he's pointing out the role of different teachers in the life of, uh, of a church and for Christians. But some people in Corinth were boasting that, hey, I'm baptized by so-and-so. And others were saying, I'm baptized by so-and-so. And, and so it was specifically going on, to put it in like modern American evangelical language, like we would say, hey, I was baptized by Tim Keller. And others were saying, like, hey, I was baptized by John Piper, and so on, so on, so on. And Paul's like, who cares? You are baptized into Christ. So, like he, so that's just in, in 1 Corinthians 1. But you keep going, and there's more and more and more controversies that they're encountering. And so very specifically, as we get to the controversy that Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 12, is that there is this belief that some Christians are inferior to other Christians. Or just to put on the flip side, that some Christians are superior to other Christians. And this is actually something Paul faced very pointedly, because he was not an eloquent speaker. And, but, and these new teachers were eloquent speakers. And, he, and th because they spoke very well, because they were eloquent and, and using great sentence structure and grammar and word choice and, and so on and so on and so on, people were even questioning whether or not Paul was a legitimate Bible teacher, if he was truly an apostle. And so this, is, this just shows us that this lie of inferiority or superiority is toxic in the life of the church. And I've seen these lies lived out uh, in various different ways. So on one hand, the lie of inferiority is easily, is easily the lie of inferiority is easily seen when someone is asked to do something. To, to step into a ministry a team role or to do an act of service or something else. And it's obviously a step outside their comfort zone. And this is what you hear in response. I'm not gifted in that way. But so-and-so is. You should ask them. Now, the reality is that God gives us spiritual gifts, and we, they're, they're each given to every single one of us. And so in some ways, in many ways, like we need to apply some wisdom and discernment as to how we exercise those so we don't uh, burn out in service within the life of the church and to others. But, but the other thing is that sometimes God gives us different spiritual gifts from one season of our life to another. And we discover our spiritual gifts and our, and our place and our service within the church by actually belonging in community and using those new gifts that God gives us. So that's, that's how we see the lie of inferiority in the church. On the other hand, I've seen the lie of, of, of um, superiority in the church in, in so many different ways. But it always seems to be attached with ego. It's attached with pride, where it's like, I'm above you, you're below me. And th this is how one friend put it. My friend David Cassidy, uh, he wrote this book, Indispensable. And this is how he put it, that he greeted someone as they were walking in to the church, and they said, hut, and they, he greeted David Cassidy for the very first time, and the greeting was like this, hello, 
I'm an I. How, how in the world does that make any sense whatsoever? But like Cassie go, goes on and has a, a deeper conversation. But what the gentleman was getting at is like, hey, I, had, I served in my previous church in this very specific role. And that is how I'm meant to serve in this church in that very specific role. So it could be like this. Like, oh, I was a, a musician at my old church. And so I need to be a musician here. Or I was a, an elder at my old church, and I'm going to be an elder here. Or I was a pastor in my old church, and I, so, hey, you should think about me uh, to be the, your next executive pastor. It could be all sorts of different things like that. But it's toxic because it's, it's, it, there's no room to learn. There's no humility. There's no real um, thought to, to, to experiment and to, to, to see and to learn about the new church that one is becoming a part of. And so these lies of inferiority and superiority uh, cause division within the church. They cause tension within the church, and they challenge a glorious truth. These lies challenge a glorious truth when it comes to the church. Because within God's family, no one is inferior and no one is superior. There are no favorites within God's family. We are all favored by God together. See, when a spirit of inferiority creeps into the church, then we also begin to question our place, our value, and service within the church. Like When the spirit of superiority creeps into the church, then the toxic garden of judgmentalism, pride, arrogance, and, and just a condescending attitude is then laid out in the church. And so these lies ultimately deny the glorious truth that Paul is speaking about here. They deny the, the gospel truth of what Jesus did for you and what the Spirit is doing in your life as well. Because what, this is what Paul is pointing out. For us, that we are all united together in Christ, that we are being brought together, stitched together by the Spirit. We're not here because we all have the same social class. We're not here for any other reasons. We're here because of God's love for us. And that's it. That's it. You are a part of the body of Christ for one reason, one reason alone, because he loves you. He favors you. So this means that all of us are equal in God's sight. Instead of looking at one another and wondering, what can they do for me? We need to be thinking, first and foremost, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I show you God's love? And so the picture that you should be seeing at this moment is the simple truth that we need one another, which brings us to the third lie. And the third lie is the lie of independence. And the lie of independence specifically says that we do not need each other we're in, in, in this language I want to use, that we do not depend upon one another. And this is when we think that we can do everything in our life that really matters on our own. And Paul has this lie in mind when he gets to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, and Paul goes on to say how we need each other and how we depend upon one another. See, when you are part of the body of Christ, the truth is that you depend on each other. You cannot live life without one another. You cannot live life on your own without the other parts of Christ's body. So here's an example. And this is just an example of how we, may, we need community, how we actually need to be humble 
and, uh, but also how we, de we depend upon each other. So as several of you know that a few weeks ago, I was in Atlanta. I was there uh, because like, it's the season where we have a lot of denominational business uh, in, in the Presbyterian Church. And so I was in Atlanta uh, as I'm on a certain committee. But as I'm in Atlanta, Jennifer and Liam go to Pittsburgh to spend time with uh, our family there. And so as I'm in the midst of this, this, this committee meeting, I, uh, it's a, it was a 12-hour workday. It was a insanely long meeting of just sitting in a committee. I began to get text messages and pictures and video from my mother-in-law. And, and so, like, I step out to see what was going on, and there are videos. And here's my grandmother ask not my grandmother, here's Liam's, yeah, here's my mother-in-law asking Liam some questions. She's asking him some catechism questions very specifically. And so she began by asking, who made you? And then you see Liam, and he jumps. He says, God. Second question, what else did God make? All things. Third question, why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. My two-and-a-half-year-old son knows the word glory now. Like, my point is this. That a major lesson of parenting is that I cannot do it on my own. But even then, sometimes I can be oblivious to that one simple truth, that I can't do it on my own. So leave it to a, a grandparent to show that my two-and-a-half-year-old son is ready to memorize the catechism. The picture right there that we have is that we depend on one another, that we need each other in our Christian life. So perhaps you're here today and you're wondering to yourself, where do I even fit in here? Where do I fit? And, because, and this is a question that I as a pastor actually hear rather frequently. And what I love about this question, what I truly value about this question is that there is awareness that the person asking this question recognizes that they need the body of Christ, that they need the church, that they depend upon the church. They recognize that Jesus died so that they would have a place within the church, that the Spirit is working in their lives to have a place in the church. See, this is a beautiful question, but this is also the point of church membership. When you take vows, where you formally join the church, you are owning God's mission in the world as your own. You are owning God's mission in the world as your own. And so the membership vows that you heard earlier, they play a vital and necessary role that demonstrates your life in Jesus Christ. See, sometimes Christians can give the idea that membership is optional. That, and when that happens, if membership is optional, then the, what is also going to be in, indirectly communicated is that your presence in the church only matters if you're if, if you're serving and giving something to the church. And that's a deadly lie. Because the reality is every single one of us is here, not because of what we do or what we offer, but it's because of what God has done for us and that God has created a place for us in his church. My friend Walter Hanegar, he's a, a church planner in Atlanta, and he wrote, he wrote an article on church membership. And this is, and this is what he says. And how he puts it this way, that when we give the impression that church membership is optional, we have, unwit we, we have unwittingly fostered a culture of spiritual cohabitation where people shack up together with a local church without ever saying, I do. 
And as every dating couple knows, love is fragile until the knot is tied. And so when you come before, when, like when we saw several people taking vows of membership, they're saying, like, we are committing ourselves to this church to journey together, to own God's mission here in Westchester, where we will follow the way of Jesus for the good of Westchester. See, you are a part of the church because of what God has done for you. God is working in, in your life. That's a fact. He's working in your life today. And so one of the questions that for you is to discern, how is God working in your life? Is he calling you to faith? Is he calling you to, to believe? Is he calling you to be baptized? Is he calling you to be a part of this church or a different church? You know, like That's one of the, the things that you have to think about is what is God doing in your life? Because the truth is God is working in your life. You have a place in his church. You are individual members of the body of Christ, and you will discover what your role is, what your place is in the church, in and through a community with who his people are. So the invitation of this passage is lean in, because there's a place for you in the body of Christ, and there's a place for you at the table of God. Let's pray.